In my high school English classes, like many of you experienced, I'm sure, uh, we were assigned to read some of the novels from some of Western literature's greatest authors. Uh, names like Mark Twain and George Orwell and Aldous Huxley come to mind. Here's, uh, here's Mark Twain here. Um, and so as I attempted to read these novels, I could usually tell you the characters that were involved and, and the events that happened in the story, but I generally really struggled to understand the purpose of, of the allegorical nature of the story. I couldn't, I couldn't really put together what the true theme was, was going on under the surface. And I think we can often treat this week's text like I treated my high school reading assignments. Our, our eyes go over, the page, go over the page, and we know the words that are on the page, uh, but the, the deeper message that's more subtly communicated can be a little bit harder to access. And so as we look at the first verses of the New Testament this morning, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, uh, let's see if we, can, if we can find out what's going on under the surface. Pray with me, and we'll dig in. God, we love you, and thank you for everything you've given us. As we celebrated Christmas this last week, uh, we, we meditate on the gift of your son, Jesus, and we pray that that's something that we, that we do often, daily, Lord. Um, as we look at, at your story and our story and enter into the book of Matthew, this, this morning and through this spring, uh, pray that you will illumine the scriptures to us to make us more like Jesus. Say these things in his name. Amen. So starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. All right, the good news is we do not have to do that again. So last week, we examined Matthew's version of the birth of Christ, and then in our Christmas Eve service, we looked at 
at Luke's version of the birth of Christ. And so this morning, as you've probably figured out by now, we're looking at Matthew's introduction to baby Jesus. And so why does Matthew start here with an in-depth look at the ancestry of Jesus? My guess is that is not how we would do it. Now, you can raise your hands here. Uh, Do we have any frequent Wikipedia users like myself? A handful? Good. So when I want to know anything about anything, I go to Wikipedia. And of all the people that I have have looked at at wikipedia.com, uh, it has never started with 41 names of their ancestry uh, dating back, you know, thousands of years. Um, but that's what Matthew gives us. And this becomes even a little bit more perplexing when we think about the fact that these are the first words in Scripture for 400 years, over 400 years. When you turn your page uh, from the Old Testament to this first page of the New Testament, 400 years has passed and nothing has been said in Scripture, historically or prophetically. Matthew does not give us a word of it. And some of history's most formative events and some of Israel's most formative events happened in this 400 years. But he gives us a list of names. Now, it's important to know uh, that Matthew was a Jewish author writing to a Jewish audience. And so that's really going to paint the style that he communicates. And so immediately in verse 1, he states his purpose when he says that he's talking about Jesus the Christ the son of Abraham, the son of David. To, this may be kind of a, a throwaway sentence for us. It seems kind of uh, second nature or old news. Uh, but to a Jewish audience, this is a really, really bold claim. The, the name Jesus means God saves, uh, and Christ means the anointed one. And when he references being a son of David, uh, all of Israel knows that, that a king from the line of David has been promised who's going to rule over the throne of God's kingdom. And that Abraham, that God's covenant with Abraham outlines a blessing from Abraham's descendants for the people of the world. And so if we were going to rephrase this, uh, we might say, God saves through Jesus, the anointed king who will rule righteously and bless the earth. And so this becomes a bold claim. And, and there's no mistaking that Matthew is saying that this is Jesus who scripture has prophesied about. And so we're one verse into the New Testament, and now we know exactly what the rest of the New Testament is going to be about. It's going to be about this King, Jesus. This morning, there are three main things that I hope we, that we glean from this text. And the first is that God, in his faithfulness, delivers on his promises so that his people will live in freedom. This is the essence of Matthew's first statement here, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise his ultimate proof of God's faithfulness. And Matthew goes on, and he uses the rest of the genealogy to reiterate this point. He takes 41, verses, 41 names, and in a matter of 15 verses, he reminds Israel and us of the entire history of, of Israel, from Abraham to the present time. So the names start with Abraham, And they start at the time of Abraham and his descendants, the time of the patriarchs, and they proceed into the founding of the nation of Israel, and Israel's time in Egypt, and their time as slaves in Egypt, their deliverance from that slavery, and then time in the wilderness for 40 years, and their eventual coming into the promised land, as God had outlined for them. And then it moves into the time of the kings, 
Uh, and so King David and King Solomon that we've learned about in recent weeks. And then into the divided kingdom, into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And then it moves, even talks about the deportation to Babylon, their exile because of their disobedience that we learned about just a couple of weeks ago. And so all these names are correlated to the times and places of events of the history of Israel. And so it's all right here in such a, in such a short, short section of Scripture. If you're like me, maybe you've struggled with the idea of God's grace in the Old Testament. Because when we read the story of Israel in the Old Testament through the lenses of our experience, it feels kind of like God's making rules, and Israel's breaking the rules, and then they get punished, and then that cycle kind of goes on, and then Jesus comes and, and makes it all right. And it's kind of funny, I sat down for dinner at a restaurant in Athens, Greece in July, and I couldn't help but overhear the table next to me having this exact same conversation. But it was among two atheists, and they were debating the merits of the Christian worldview. And one was kind of deconstructing and saying all the reasons that, that you know, he just couldn't, couldn't get behind the biblical worldview. And the other one, also an atheist, was actually coming to the defense of the faith. It was really fascinating. And one of the points he made was, he said, well, the Old Testament is kind of these, these laws and really specific actions that the people are supposed to produce. But the New Testament is really what, you know, tells people to be good, serve their community, be nice to their neighbors, that sorts of thing. And while I felt like he had to be missing the gist of the story of Scripture, I had to admit that I could totally relate with where he was coming from. I mean, that's very much like, like how I've read the Scripture so often. But I think this text can be Matthew reframing that idea. Because when we look at the names of these gene- in, in this genealogy and the times and the places and events correlated with them, uh, what we see is, is God first through Abraham uh, creating this covenant. And he says uh, that, that the nation of Israel and Abraham's descendants will bless. And then he goes to Moses at Sinai uh, and, and even creates a new covenant. Um, and so when we, ref- when we kind of reframe the idea of Israel in the Old Testament, we could say that God is, God is telling his people, he's saying, Israel, I choose you to bless you, an unassuming nation, so you will bless others by displaying my character to the world. If you'll follow these guidelines, you'll be able to treat others with extreme dignity. If you participate in these rituals, you will remind yourself of your own humanity. And in the times when you take the gift of me and my presence and my blessing and abuse it and choose to be entitled and exploit weak individuals, know that I cannot sit by idly and do nothing and still be just. I will give you ample opportunity to turn from corruption and bullying, but if you don't, I will do whatever is necessary to bring you back to a place of repentance and right relationship with me. And so when we look at it in that, in that framework, that's a lot different than disobedience and getting a spanking. And sprinkled throughout this, this story of Israel and God in the Old Testament is the promise that one's going to come who's going to set the situation right once and for all. And so in these 17 verses... Matthew shows us what the New Testament is about, but he also shows us what the Old Testament is about, is that it's all pointing 
to the personhood of Jesus. And that that proves God's faithfulness, the flesh and blood of God's follow-through on his promise. And so this text really becomes a beautiful hinge that the door between the Old Testament and New Testament swings on. The second thing I hope we see from this passage is the family of God. We just looked at what these names represent in terms of their historical significance to Israel. But who were they as people, as individuals? Before we get to that just yet, uh, it's important to, to think about a little bit about what a Jewish genealogy means. Unlike our, our genealogies uh, that when we go to Ancestry.com or now they've got these chromosome tests out, we're looking at a very uh, literal line uh, that precedes us, a very literal family tree with DNA. A Jewish genealogy was not always like that. Um, a lot of times it existed to tell a story, and so some generations will be left out. Um, and in the case of Jesus, he didn't even have a father that he shared DNA with. Joseph, he, you know, he did not share DNA with. And so we look at this, it is not a literal, a literal genealogy, but it exists to send a message. John Ray helped us understand it this week in our teaching team meeting by explaining the idea of adoption. He said, you know, if you, if you look at someone adopted, um, you can take their biological parents and that may be able to explain why they have some of the physical features they have, why they look the way that they do. But that will not explain what has made them who they are. You'd have to look at their adoptive family and that family's family and the community that, that formed that person. And that's what this text does for Jesus. It shows us his tribe, the people that have preceded him, that have formulated his coming. And so as we peek under the covers of the life stories of the people included, what we see is that, that these people are our people and this story is our story because this is, this is not a lineup of people who have done it all right all the time. And yet so many of them, God has showed his favor to. We know that God called Abraham righteous, but in fear he lied about his wife being his sister. Jacob's life was wrought with deception, both giving and receiving, but his sons became founders of Israel. David was called a man after God, but he raped a woman who was the wife of a man that was loyal to him and then had the man killed. And Matthew's totally consistent with Jewish, Jewish tradition by using the genealogy to tell this story until he does one thing. He mentions women. And not only that, in the case of, of Mary and Joseph, he actually uses Joseph, he actually relates Joseph to the woman that he was associated with, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is virtually unheard of. And furthermore, the women in this story don't have much of a better reputation than the men that we just looked at. You know, one commentator said uh, that these women have, and I quote, all of them non-conforming behaviors around sex. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho, not even an Israelite, but she displayed massive faith in God. Tamar, out of desperation for a child, pretended to be a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law. And Mary had a child as a virgin. Scripture doesn't look at every name in this genealogy with high favor, but many of the people included in this list will foreshadow the types of people that Jesus will forge relationships with as he takes his ministry public. 
It's the people who didn't have everything together, but had a spirit of humility. The people that the culture and the power broker for the day didn't need to value, thought could be throwaway people, and in the case of women, were viewed as property. Like Linda Murphy told us a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the story of Esther, we've all got history, and not all of it's pretty, but God has his eye on each of us. So we've established that God delivers on his promise, and Jesus is, is the most prime example of that. We've now established that God makes sure that we're aware that nobody's dysfunction disqualifies them from being a part of his people. And he invites each of us and all of our dysfunction into that family as well. The third thing I hope we experience, and it, and it kind of ties these two previous points together, is that God's faithfulness in delivering on his promise and inviting us into his family is not dependent on us, and it's not dependent on our faithfulness. As we close out the theme we've been working through these last couple of months that we've called Encountering Covenant, maybe the best illustration is to, is to go like we did a few minutes ago back to the people of Israel and their covenant and see that you know, their covenant was, was uh, outlined in a way that it was dependent on their ability to be obedient. And we see throughout the story of the Old Testament that they did not have the ability to be obedient. They continued to struggle with this. And yet God, in his mercy, would bring Israel to the place of repentance to bring them back into right, right relationship with God. God became the main actor in their story of bringing them back into peace with him. And so as we, as we think about that, um, we kind of have to ask ourselves, where does that intersect with our human experience? How do we apply that to our lives? Is there something that, that we can do uh, to live into that? And, um, you know, there's, there's one thing that really comes, comes to mind for me, and, and the rest of the New Testament will speak to it, uh, and that's that we've got to practice the, the discipline of submission to God, because if these things are true, that, that God's faithful to his promise, especially in sending Jesus, and that he invites us into his family, that reality demands a response from us. And while his faithfulness is not dependent on us, it does not mean that we don't have a response. It doesn't mean that passivity or complacence is, is the best choice of action. But as we learn to submit to the personhood of Jesus, as we learn to give up our idea of control or what our, of what our like, life is supposed to look like, uh, we can begin to experience the freedom that, that Scripture promises us. Um, I'm, uh, I'm convinced at this point that there, there, are no, there are no formulas in the Christian life. I can't always plug in behavior X and expect to get the same output Y from God. Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've tried for a lot of my life, uh, like I'm sure many of you experienced, to be good enough or to work hard enough uh, to, re to receive peace and joy from God. If there's been a Bible study, a discipleship product, project, um, you know, a small group to be a part of, I've probably joined it hoping that this will be the thing that brings me, brings me joy, that brings me peace. And when it hasn't happened, 
know, we end up in burnout and cynicism. We think we should just throw in the towel and give up. We know that neither of those, neither of those ditches really works for us. Um, the Jesus Storybook Bible illustrates this, this idea really beautifully, this storybook Bible for kids, when it talks about another story that we were in a few weeks ago, the story of Naaman. He's a warrior from the Old Testament with a lot of power, but he's got a problem. He has leprosy. And God has given him a way to be healed of his leprosy, but he doesn't like, he doesn't like the methodology, and so he responds in anger. And the storybook Bible says it like this. Uh, it says, in terms of healing, that's not how God does things. All Naaman needed was nothing. It was the one thing he didn't have. The discipline of, of submission is bringing our nothing to God. And that's a really hard thing to do. Um, but we can learn, and I'm learning slowly, that little by little, I can give a little bit more to God. A little bit more to say, God, this is yours. Um, letting my expectations, you know, giving those aside and saying, okay, God, you're in control, and I allow you to be in control. The expectations and plans that I had for my life are now in yours. Uh, Lucian and the worship team, you uh, are welcome to make your way back up to the stage. As we've explored this text being a bridge between the New Testament and the Old Testament. We kind of sit on a bridge this week between 2018 and 2019. Uh, the, the smell of a fresh start is palpable, and maybe we're, maybe we're desperate to just put 2018 behind us, or, or maybe not. Uh, but I pray that 2019 will be a, be a time when we as a church, as individuals, will, will grow in our practice of submission to the Lord. As we move into a time of worship and reflection, we will take an offering and, and practice the observance of communion. Um, know that our communion table is open to anyone who is seeking Jesus, and we do not dismiss by rows, so you can come at your pleasing. Grace Church, I pray that we will go in freedom.
This is the 
During the season of Christmas, um, I think some things sometimes for me um, can be so focused on on the birth and and forget that the culmination of the promise of God, the culmination of His promise to us, is at the cross. when he gave it all. He gave it all for us. Pray that as we look at the cross in our hearts, in our minds right now, that that there would be a cry in our hearts. Even an audible cry. Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're beautiful.
are in motion and galaxies are bright. We are amazed in the light of the stars. It's all proclaimed who you are. You're beautiful. Oh, 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 oh. oh, oh, oh. You're beautiful. Oh, 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 oh. You're beautiful. Oh, 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 oh. showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an antonym sacrifice for our sins.
see your face, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. I see your face, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. I see your face, you're beautiful. You're beautiful, you're beautiful. I see your face, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see how beautiful I want to see how wonderful is your love for me Oh, open the eyes of my heart, Lord Open the eyes of my heart I want to see how beautiful I want to see how wonderful is your love for me you to stand with us as we sing this really beautiful carol, O Holy Night. Just really want to invite us as we sing the third verse. Truly he taught us to love one another. And we would say, God, teach us how to love one another. Yeah. 
knows our need to our weaknesses no
Good morning, Grace friends. Now for our benediction. As we close the door on another year, may we look back at the defeats without shame and the victories without pride, but look to God as the author and perfecter of our faith. May both the victories and defeats of this year pave the way forward in wholeness. And as we walk through the door to a new year, may we experience love, joy, and peace with God, others, and ourselves. Amen.